When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. There has to be gusto, but not an extreme amount of gusto. Justo gusto. Gusto. I've lost the thread. What am I doing again? So that happened one week after an election in which Democrats paid the price for being timid. President Obama remembered that he's supposed to do stuff coming out in bold support of net neutrality, imploring the FCC to not let the Internet become a Comcast dystopia. This coming weekend marks another important enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act. Healthcare reporter Jeff Young joins us to explain why current enrollees might want to head back and reshop those exchanges. And speaking of the exchanges, the Supreme Court is said to hear a case that might imperil everyone who's received an Obamacare subsidy. And everything hinges on just how jaundiced and dishonest our Supreme Court justices are willing to be. I'm Jason Lincolns. This podcast is going to be forever or it's going to go down in flames. And here's what happened first. Joining me today, as usual, is... Zach Carter, senior political economy reporter for The Huffington Post and... I'm Jeff Young. I also work here. That's right. That's right. Jeff Young is here uh, today. He's the bat boy. Uh, you are a healthcare reporter. Primarily. A subject right. matter expert. I'd like to think so. So we'll try to exploit that today um, as best we can. Along with the peasants. I love nothing more than being exploited. So <laughs> do your worst. So this week, President Obama comes out with a big announcement. He's in favor of net neutrality. Yay! We're all really excited about net neutrality. Who wants to do the, like, back of the cereal box uh, description of what ne- net neutrality is? Anyone? Well, here's the deal. Net neutrality is basically what the Internet has been since the beginning of the Internet. It means there's Internet stuff out there. There's Internet connective stuff. There's a series of tubes. But everybody has the same access to it. If you are in control of the tubes, you don't get to restrict access to some people because you don't like them or because they didn't pay you enough. It just means it's an egalitarian system where anybody who wants can access the Internet tubes and use the Internet, whatever their website may be. Right. I like to think of... Net neutrality is the thing that allows Mallory Ortberg's great website, thetoast.com, which everyone should go read. It's awesome. It allows them the same equal footing in the Internet world as CNN. They, their, their content loads just as fast as CNN's. They don't have to hire an army of lawyers to negotiate deals with cable companies to get on platforms, to get on subscription so it's like the yeah. same, it's the way it's always been. They're, they're all driving on the same roads, the same speed limits, same stuff. Well, so I think that I think a layperson might hear that and wonder, well, then why does anybody need to do anything? You that know, is a great already the status quo. Then what's the problem? That is a great point. You know, and I think in a way, and I, I suppose we have to get to the details of what the president is actually asking the FCC to do in a moment. But and I think I, I wonder if, in a way, one of the reasons why this is a difficult subject to talk about or for people to understand is that there. 
the the downsides, the change that, that people talk about maybe happening is your internet provider taking extra money from one company, say Amazon, and giving them a better deal than, say, Netflix. So if you're a Netflix customer, your movies look like crap and you're paying the same amount to your internet company every month. But that's not exactly happening already. So like, it seems like it's more an effort to forestall a future bad outcome than fix a current problem. Yeah, J- John Herman at the All wrote a really great piece about this called The Semantic Death of Net Neutrality. And he talks about the fact that we were stuck with this term, net neutrality, that it's like, first of all, it takes it takes a few steps to explain it. John Oliver on Last Week Tonight did a really good job explaining it. Um, I recommend people go out and watch that video of his. Um, but, like, the, the funny thing about what, what we're stuck with in net neutrality is that the people who support it, like the president, essentially support the status quo right now, the way the internet is. But as Herman points out, when when Obama goes out, as he did this week, to make his speech about, here's what I want to do with net neutrality, it immediately sounds like he's trying to sell you something. Like, it immediately sounds like, oh, it's an Obama pitch. Oh, it's like something Obama wants to do, something Obama wants to change. And like, the, the salient point is that what Obama is trying to do is ensure that nothing changes. But the administration has sort of uh, backed themselves into a corner here through two, I think, consecutive very poor uh, FCC commissioners. Um, the FCC is the agency, federal agency, which is responsible for writing rules that would solidify that this is, this is how the internet will, will function. And the last FCC chairman, a guy named Julius Janikowski, basically under a whole lot of pressure from telecom companies, cable companies, uh, kind of screwed the pooch and, uh, and crafted a really bad rule saying, we don't want to declare the internet to be a, a sort of common carrier utility like phone lines um, that, that the FCC has the right to regulate, but we're going to regulate them as if we did have the right to regulate them anyway and, and impose net neutrality standards on them. And Verizon uh, sued after, after the, the FCC chairman bent over backwards to try to craft language that would be more favorable to, to companies like Verizon. Verizon sued the administration and got the rule overturned. So unless the FCC actually does something, the internet will in fact change dramatically uh, and, and you're access to it, the way, the way you can enjoy things, a sort of democratic environment where anybody can go make a blog post that, that has you know, the, same, the same access to, uh, to the universe as everybody else's stuff, uh, will, will come to an end. Well, I was just reading a, a story that, that we published a couple of days ago on this issue, um, and I forget who wrote it, so I'm not going to be able to give credit, but uh, there was a statement in there from the trade group for the big telecom companies that said, basically, you know, we're not doing this thing. We're not choking anybody. We're not blocking anybody, so none of this is necessary, um, which is sort of what I was thinking about a moment ago. Of course, now I'm remembering accounts from friends of mine, which, for what that's worth, Maybe you remember this. I think a lot of people might remember from their own experiences. Earlier this year, a lot of people who had Verizon Fios suddenly felt like their Netflix was streaming really slowly. And Netflix started bad-mouthing Verizon in public. This may or may not have been an actual example of this kind of favoritism. But it's certainly suggestive, I think, of what could happen. And then I also have to wonder, you know, for these big telecoms, if they're saying, hey, this is totally not necessary, we're not restricting anybody's access to anything, then... 
what is the problem? Right. Why? I, this is a really common lobbying argument that you hear from corporations when they don't want to be subjected to regulations. They say, well, hey, we're not doing that anyway. Well, if you're not doing it, doing it then why would you care if there are rules saying you can't do it? I mean, obviously, the, the, only, the only future possible problem for these companies is that they will be restricted from charging certain customers more um, than, than other customers. And they've been doing this weird lobbying blitz, for the sort of PR blitz, where companies like Comcast say they're in favor of net neutrality. They, they publish you know, big, oh, yeah. big ads in, in print saying they like net neutrality. When they say that, what they mean is they don't actually want the right to have to, like, you know, to be able to shut down other websites, but they do want the right to be able to charge certain websites more money than others. One of the things I think is hilarious is that like a guy today who's like, I'm going to start a blog bashing net neutrality is basically saying, I don't want anyone to read my shit. I want it to load real slow. I want to lose out. Um, you, all of this since Obama got behind it has gotten mixed up in the tribal politics of, of nonsense, like everything does. And so there was a statement, a hilarious statement from Ted Cruz, who 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 called net neutrality the Obamacare for the internet. (laughs) And the thing I keep thinking about is like, this man went to Princeton. (laughs) This man has an Ivy fucking league de fucking green. Like he is either, he's either taking the stupid pills or more, more likely knows what to say to get the rubes all freaked out about Obama changing the internet. When again, I go back to the point before. He's not changing shit. But, you know, ultimately, I think that that rhetorical device doesn't actually work very well. Like, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have been calling Dodd-Frank, you know, the big 2010 Wall Street reform law, Obamacare for banks for, like, over a year. And Dodd-Frank still polls very well. It's still very popular. I mean, there, there are problems with the law. I think there, there are a lot of critiques from, from, you know, sort of bank reform type people who say it doesn't go far enough. Um, but, but there's no sense in which Obamacare for the banks is, is synonymous with, with Dodd-Frank. And, and nobody actually believes it. I mean, there are people in the base who are just inclined to hate anything that the president gets behind no matter what, who will say, okay, that reminds me that the president's on board with this stuff, um, so I should, I should be against it. Uh, but but it, it doesn't really have any traction outside of the, the, the hardcore base. So, I, I, I mean, that, that is Ted Cruz's sort of political constituency, right. so I can see why I would want to say it, but I don't, I don't think that's actually that significant. I think really where the battle here is is between Obama and the guy who he named to be his own FCC chair, a guy named Tom Wheeler, who was formerly the head of the foremost lobbying group for the telecom companies, for the AT&Ts and Verizons and Comcasts of the world, um, who had been been trying to trying to sort of weasel out of uh, of reclassifying uh, the internet as as this uh, this public utility that needs to be uh, subject to the same regulations of other public utilities. Zach, I think it might be helpful actually if you just explained what it was that Obama did the other day that caused us to be talking about this because I think we sort of maybe skipped over that. Oh right, yeah. I mean, yeah. he 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 made a public statement. Um, in which he essentially defined net neutrality the same way that uh, 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 Tim Wu, the guy who coined the term, defined it. Uh, and like the people, the people who were proponents of net neutrality uh, were very excited to hear this. You know, they were just like, "Boom, he got it right! Boom, he got it right!" Um, and obviously, some of the shittiest corporations in America are up, are upset about this: Comcast, Verizon, AT and T, uh, because they would like to dole out. Uh, they would like to rake in more money. I suppose they have a sort of case in that long ago they invested in the infrastructure that now pays for all this, so why can't they make money on this? Well, 
they can make money on it. They, they are making money. They are making money on it. They, on they, it. The reason they continue to provide the internet is not uh, is internet service is not out of the goodness of their hearts. They they're doing that to make money, and they do a very good job making money at it. Um, they do a very poor job providing customer service. Really uh, shitty job. <laughs> but they do. They, but I mean, Comcast actually, I think, has the is the the has the least respected corporate brand uh, in in the United States more broadly, which is quite a feat after the Wall Street meltdown, um, and after, you know with all the things you have to jump through for health insurance and things like that. The problems that people have had in their lives, the thing that drives them the nuts the most is dealing with Comcast. Um, and, and these guys are, but these guys are really powerful in Washington. They have a lot of influence over the FCC and historically have. I mean, usually the FCC basically does whatever the telecom companies want to do. The, st- the commissioners tend to go from and to the, uh, the telecom uh, in- industry. Uh, and, and Wheeler, is, is, uh, who is currently the, the chair of the FCC, is, is one, of, one of those guys. But Obama made a pledge in 2008 saying he was really on board with net neutrality. This is what he wanted to do. He was going to preserve the Internet, keep, the, keep things as they were. And so there's a sense in which his statement this week is just reminding everybody what he said six years ago. But because the FCC under his watch has gotten so bad about this stuff, it, it really does take a big statement like that to remind people this is the administration's position. And it puts Wheeler in a tough spot. He really doesn't, he doesn't have, he can't just try, he, there was a, an interesting meeting this week that was reported on sort of differently by the Washington Post and by the Huffington Post where Wheeler was basically saying, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Uh, the president's come out against me and I'm clearly not in favor of the president's um, proposal, but I feel like I've got to do, got to go along with him and I'm just not sure where, where I'm going to be. Obviously, all shakes out. Does well? Does I mean? Does the FCC actually have to do anything? You know, Obama has asked them, "I want you to do something, and this is what I want you to do." And for people who don't know, he can't order them to because the FCC is one of those government agencies where the president doesn't actually. They don't work for the president per se. He can't fire them basically. Right. So independent agency. Independent. Um, but I mean, am I wrong that if? You know, Tom Wheeler or the rest of the commission decides that they don't want anything to do with this, that they can just do nothing? Well, I, th- I think because the last regulation was struck down, the FCC, there, there is a, a, a legal vagary about what, what the status quo needs is. Um, they, they do need something to provide certainty. Otherwise, they can be sued a bunch by, by the telecom companies whenever they try to, to keep things. If, if the telecom companies start strangling traffic, choking traffic off, um, the FCC doesn't have, currently have anything on the books that says you can't do that. Um, so they, they could be subject to, to lawsuits from the industry. How those would shake out would depend on the courts, but it, it certainly would provide more legal certainty to, to the scenario if the FCC actually issued a rule. But it's an easy rule to write. You just say the Internet is like a phone line and we have the right to regulate it, and then it's over. Well, one last thing before we move on. If anyone out there is wondering why Obama waited till this week to talk about an issue that's exceedingly popular as opposed to Let's say a few weeks ago when an exceedingly popular idea from a Democratic president may have done people good in an election. The answer is a few weeks ago, Democratic candidates, they still needed that Comcast money. They don't anymore. So we're back on track for net neutrality. Yay. Hooray. All right, we're going to talk about Obamacare now. Recent things going on with Obamacare. Communism. Or as or as some people refer to Obamacare, communism. communism. 
which to my mind is a real insult to communists. <laughs> like, I feel like communists would be like, whoa, no. Are you kidding me? All this, like, free market shit? No. Our, our website works. But you wouldn't right. say that if you had noticed Obamacare taking over half of Europe. No, that's which, right. That's happened last week. Nobody noticed that, but they actually <laughs> brought tanks in. <laughs> Obamacare invaded the Ukraine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> On Armistice Day of all days. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Oh, the irony. So we have, there's, there's, there's actually, we're going to be servicing now because there's some things you need to know about Obamacare that's happening this weekend. Right. So here's now, Jeff Young. I'll preface it by saying there's tons and tons of noise about Obamacare right now, and we could talk about that in a moment. But personally, I think what's actually more important to real people and not just those, not eggs on Twitter who yell at, at reporters, um, is that on Saturday is the beginning of the three-month-long enrollment period for people who use the exchanges set up by the law, the insurance exchanges. That includes about 7 million people who already have plans from there and need to renew them or pick a new one for next year. And it also includes some people who are currently uninsured, uh, who they're trying to track down and sign up, and then anybody else who maybe they lost their job or their, or something like that and they need insurance for next year. Um, as people may recall, we did this about a year ago, and it started out horribly. The website didn't work. Everybody was very upset. A bunch of people had their old insurance canceled, even though Obama told them that was going to happen. Um, a lot of that is now water under the bridge. We won't know until Saturday and then on into the next three months, but it seems like healthcare.gov, the website that people in 37 states use to sign up for these plans, is probably going to work. Not Amazon good, I'd bet, but probably not healthcare.gov bad like it was last October. <laughs> Likewise, in a, you know, a bunch of the states that do their own insurance uh, exchanges, some of them have supposedly fixed up their websites like in Maryland and Massachusetts. And, you know, so ideally for people who have to use those things, um, it won't be horrible, horrible, horrible. It'll just be annoying because buying insurance is annoying. Um, yeah, so that, that, kicks really off, that kicks off on Saturday. If you're one of these people, you really should go back on the website, probably not put it off too long, and check and see what's out there because there's a very good chance that if you have something now, there'll be something cheaper for you next year that's not the same plan that you have. Um, I'll have a story up about that pretty soon, actually. Well, and so that's but that's one of the things that's been interesting to me about the whole, like all the public furor over over Obamacare. Because at first it was you know government takeover of the healthcare system, and then it became pretty clear that actually it was just you know a website where you could go to buy private sector health insurance. Um, but private sector health insurance is is like you said earlier is kind of annoying, um, and plans change year to year. Insurers get different standards. They you know your premium rates go up. I mean, I've mm-hmm. I've been getting my insurance through Huffington Post for like four years now, and each year I have to pay a little bit more. More, and I'm always a little bit irritated by that. The specifics of the plan change a little bit. Um, do you feel like this has been? Uh, I guess. Do you feel like this has been? There's been some confusion within the general public about like how how the program works and, oh, and misplaced anger. Maybe there, there's more confusion than there is understanding. Um, and you know, a big part of that is just. Well, as you were saying, health insurance itself and the American healthcare system is crazy complicated, and the Affordable Care Act only addressed that to a limited extent. Because really the only other way to address that while still, you know, trying to get the most number of people with coverage as possible would be to, like, sign everybody up for Medicare and just be done with it. But Mm -hmm. that's not what we're doing here. So when you build it on top of a complex system and a very complex financial product, which is effectively what health insurance is, um, it's hard for people. And especially since a lot of of these, you know, 7 million and change people who have this insurance right now from these exchanges – 
had never had insurance before. So there's all this jargon and terminology, and it's, it's, it's hard to understand. And it doesn't help that we are still politicking and arguing about the merits of something that's been law for four and a half years. Um, I've always said that one of Obamacare's main problems is that the the number of people who are actually impacted by Obamacare actually intersect with it, use it, are affected by it is so much smaller than the number of people who have opinions about it. That's right. Well, just to put it in perspective, there are, like I said, about 7 million current enrollees in private insurance plans uh, purchased on these insurance exchanges, right? There are 150, 160 million people who get insurance from their jobs. Right. right. This is a tiny, tiny sliver of the healthcare market. Um, big, big changes are happening in there, and they're happening for people who largely were left out of this market before, which is what makes it significant. But it's 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 a pretty small thing in the larger context of like the economy and health insurance itself. I mean, just just to illustrate that in one way, you've got these big health insurance companies participating in these exchanges. If you look at their financials. It makes up such a small part of their book of business that it doesn't – it barely budges their earnings, mm-hmm. their revenues. You know. That said, um, there are a lot more insurance companies participating this year because the exchanges, despite all the problems last time around, mm-hmm. worked well enough that they see that there's an opportunity to win customers here, which is one reason why actually it's super important for current enrollees to shop around because the prices have gone down and gone up. And they're all over the place because some companies guessed wrong. Some companies underpriced last year. Some companies overpriced. Some new ones are coming in and trying to win business from their competitors. So that's why if you've got a great deal for this year, it's probably a bad idea to stand pat because there's somebody else out there trying to win your business. And the company that you bought from last year, it may have been so cheap because they got it wrong and they charged you too little. And this is one of the weird things about the lobbying fight you know, from like five years ago over this. As you point out, this is, while this is just a tiny sliver of these companies' earnings, this is actually an opportunity for these companies to get new customers. and always has been. And, and for these really like long-developed markets, you know, whether you're talking about health insurance or car insurance or you know, checking accounts, these things that pretty much everybody has, there really aren't a whole lot of opportunities to win new customers for these companies. I mean, that's why like for car insurance... Otherwise, for it's a, very marginal. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's why like you, when you're watching like, a football game or whatever, you see a ton of ads for car insurance because there actually aren't new customers out there for car insurance. They can only expand their own book of business by eating somebody else's. Right. So this, this is a rare opportunity where they can actually just sort of grow, grow the pie. And yet there was this long, drawn-out, brutal fight over this for, uh, you know, for, for several months when, when we're just talking about you know, essentially helping big companies uh, you know, win, win some more customers and, and making sure that a few million people don't have to live in constant fear of going bankrupt if they get sick. For, for, for these companies, like in terms of, I mean, I... I don't know. I guess I'll speak for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, They don't come you know, to our podcast. There, there's so. obviously a trade-off here, right? Because they have this pool of new customers. Uh, they have a law that says that everybody has to buy their product, well, almost everybody. Mm-hmm. So they like that part. And the individual mandate. Yes. And because so many people, 85% of exchange enrollees got some level of government uh, uh, subsidy for their plan, well, these companies are – the market's just built in for them. Mm-hmm. 
But they did have to subject themselves to a whole bunch of new regulations that they don't like, um, starting with the fact that they can't turn anybody away. If you, if you call them during open enrollment and you say, I have three kinds of cancer, they have to sell you the insurance anyway, right. even though they're going to take a bath on it. So they're not nuts about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a part of the evaluation, too, is that even though it's a very small piece of the pie right now, you know, I mean, again, 7 million people, what are there, 300 million people in this country or something like yeah, that? 350. Um, there has been a slow but long trend over the last couple of decades where fewer and fewer employers are offering insurance to their workers. So I think for these companies, if they're looking long-term, this market's going to get bigger um, because now companies can companies can decide that they don't want to be in the health insurance business anymore and not leave their employees totally in the lurch. Right. So probably over a long period of time, fewer people will get insurance through their jobs. Although for big companies like the one we work for, it still doesn't really make sense for them to dump it because it's way cheaper uh, to get insurance through a large company. And also it makes us feel as workers like we're being taken care of. Yes, you, you like your employer when they give you when they give you health insurance, even if you know they, they were maybe going to pay you more or something in cash. Yeah. Just getting the benefit feels like, oh, these guys have got my back. And they're doing a lot of the work for you. Yeah. <laughs> for better yeah. or worse, you know, I mean, we have at our company, we have three plans to choose from. I sort of take it for granted that AOL, you know, vetted those right. for me uh, to, to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And when, you, when, you, when your options are, I mean, this is one thing that's probably difficult for people uh, working with healthcare.gov. I mean, they don't have three options. They have a whole, a whole bunch Dozens, of different hundreds. options. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so take, take care with all of that, everybody. But uh, Jeff, there's some other news, yeah. uh, which may mean that all of this is futile uh, <laughs> if, if we take sort of a dystopian turn. And, and what, what, what was that news? Yes, yeah, so there is a doomsday scenario here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, for for Obamacare. Um, people may have read this uh, about a week ago. The Supreme Court agreed to take up a lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act that says that uh, a wisp of a... Fr- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Inside the hundreds of pages of this law means that, hmm, <laughs> that subsidies are not allowed to be given out 
in states where the federal government is running the health insurance exchange because those state governments decided not to do it themselves. So because it all turns like on uh, some sort of grammatical technicality. So because the state, the, because the state itself didn't set up the exchange, but opted to let the federal government do it for right. them, then suddenly the subsidies no longer apply. That's right. Yeah, the uh, way the, the, the Congress clearly intended this to work the way it's working, but because of the vagaries of some kind of clause in the law that everyone's everyone who hates Obamacare is dove down on. It threatens to undo the whole thing, specifically the subsidies for people in these 37 states right. that are receiving it. Now, Jonathan Bernstein and Jonathan Chait are two people who have filed satirical amicus briefs, let's call them, <laughs> comparing all of this to a to an episode of Seinfeld. Uh, the one in which uh, – <laughs> not even kidding. The one in which – we just talked about this. The one in which um, uh, George – for he's, he's playing Cheerio Pursuits with this boy in a bubble. The boy in the bubble who is – and the boy in the bubble is a real asshole. And, and George is – Isn't George kind of an asshole? Exactly. So George – so this is like, ooh, you know, assholes battling each other mm. in trivial pursuits. So the question comes down to an answer. Uh, he's – the boy in the bubble is going to win. The question has to do with the Moors. And the boy in the bubble correctly answers whatever the question was, the Moors. But there's a misprint on the card that makes – that says the Moops. Now, the boy in the bubble has absolutely got the question right. No one can dispute that. It's factual truth. But George cleaves to the fact that the card itself, the trivial pursuits gave him, says the moops, and he won't let him win. Like, that's essentially what's going on with this case. By the way, uh, in fairness, I should point out that to my recollection, it was actually Simon Malloy at Salon who first used Sorry, that you're analogy right. in print. And I know that because he called me out on it because I used it the same day in a story that before I had seen his. Um, <laughs> you're right. It was so, Simon Malloy. Yeah, and I forget who said this, but earlier this week, uh, somebody wrote that – the, it goes a little further than that because the case the plaintiffs are making here is not just that the card says moops, but that the answer is actually moops. Right, yes. <laughs> right. Yes. So the, the, the argument hinges upon not just a literal reading of one part of the law that's at odds with the rest of the law and with what I think is pretty, was pretty clear, the congressional – the intent of Congress and the President Obama, which was to subsidize health insurance for anybody – uh, who qualified for help based on their income. Uh, but the legal argument rests also upon the assertion that Congress always intended for uh, states to only get subsidies for their residents if they did the work of creating their own exchange as some kind of cudgel, but that they kept it a secret until it was uncovered by an economist at a libertarian think tank. <laughs> Yeah, this was the master plan all along, was to fool the governors and legislators at two-thirds of the American states into not setting up an exchange so that several years later the Supreme Court could take away the subsidies that their residents had. Sounds like a great idea. And there was much rejoicing. Right, So yeah. this, is, this is the argument. Um, and that's the part where, uh, if it's not clear, it loses me. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> but good for you. Yes. But well, I don't know. I mean, I'd probably own my home if I were. Um, but I can conceive of a circumstance in which a court looks at the text of a statute and says, look, guys, I'm sorry, but it says moves right, right here. There's nothing we can do yeah. about that. This is Congress's problem. They made the mistake. It's up to them to fix it. it I can conceive of that. In a logical way. Yeah, if, but what I can't accept, having covered this bill every day that Congress right. was debating it, 
written and you tens of thousands of words about it. Hundreds of reporters covered it. I spoke to the lawmakers. I spoke to administration officials. I spoke to congressional staff. You spoke to opponents of the law. Yes, right. I probably spoke to park benches about this thing. Right. Um, (laughs) No one ever said – Vote park bench in 2016. No one at that time ever said the idea here is to force states to set up exchanges uh, and then tell them if they don't, uh, their citizens can't get tax credits, which if – come to think of it, if that were the plan, it's not a bad one. But it wasn't the plan (laughs) because no one ever said that. When Rick Perry said, I don't want an exchange in the state of Texas, the Obama administration did not say, okay then, but if you do that, no one in Texas can get any subsidies. So that's on you, Rick. Because if that were true, it would have been a pretty persuasive argument in favor of setting up the exchange, or at least it would have put some of the blame on the governor for not doing it. Right. So, you know, hey, spread, spread that around. But anyway, so... This may all sound totally absurd, but it wasn't too absurd for the Supreme Court. Uh, the way that their rules work. Which baffles me. It would set a zany precedent if they up- upheld. Wait, I, I, think, I think it's even weirder than this. Well, they, right? it's not even upholding. No one, no court has actually ruled in favor right. of the plaintiffs. No appeals court has actually done this. Right. The Supreme Court is taking it up anyway. Right. Usually, they only take up a case if there are if if, if you know multiple different appeals courts have come to different di- different findings, a split. or or if or if they really think that the appeals court has just got it totally wrong, uh, and, and at least four justices have to sign off on, on accepting the case. And so, if if there's no split in the lower courts, if all the lower courts are are on the same page, the only reason to take it up is if you think the lower court got it wrong. Some people or, say that three mm-hmm. justices that it may be the case that three justices want to hear this case. And one or two others are letting them do it out of collegiality. I So, okay. I was just thinking about this, and maybe this is crazy, but I'll say it out loud anyway. Go ahead. Um, it's a podcast. The kind of conventional wisdom, given the makeup of the court and its recent history, uh, is that the – okay, so it takes four justices to agree to take up a case. It must have been the four conservatives because they want to kill Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's true, right? I mean, it certainly stands to reason. We don't know because they don't have to tell us because that's how the court works. Right. But my crazy idea is maybe it's four justices who think this lawsuit is so ridiculous. They want to dispatch with it, answer this question finally so the country can move on. Interesting and, theory. And, and maybe force the conservative justices on the court to write some really preposterous dissenting opinions. Who knows? <laughs> that, that, that's, the, that's the fun thing about the Supreme Court. We have no idea what right. they're thinking because no they don't have to tell us. Well, there's, there's one other thing that I want to point out about this, and that's usually uh, – I, I haven't covered health care, um, but I, you know, I've covered the banking sector for a long time. There's like five different bank regulatory agencies, so there's always stuff going on with, with bank regulators. And there are a whole lot of different banking statutes that apply to banks. And a lot of them aren't necessarily totally consistent with each other. There's, there are vagaries. They pass laws in the 1970s that don't, aren't supposed to have anything to do with the law in the 1930s, but they conflict, and somebody sues because they're banks and they like to sue people. Um, and, and so they got to work something out. Typically, the, the courts defer when, when the law is unclear to the interpretation of the executive branch. Whatever the regulatory agency is who is responsible for implementing the law, their interpretation, unless they get it egregiously wrong, the courts just, just defer to the, to the agencies and say, well, that's that. Um, and here you have a case where the IRS has said, well, the law is a little bit vague here, but clearly it would be insane to read it the way that we've basically been saying it would be insane to read it. Um, so let, let's read it the way everybody knows this thing is, has been uh, intended to, to be read. People get subsidies for signing up for health insurance. Um, 
the, the court would, would be overturning that and, and overturning a lot of precedent about how, how, how the court's supposed to defer to the, the executive branch. So there are actually really significant implications um, if, if they were to follow through on that logic uh, and, and overturn the law for, for how the executive branch is, the, the deference that they're given by the, uh, the judicial branch. And I, I want to be totally clear, too, about the real-world implications of this. Because right, in a scenario where the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs and eliminates the subsidies in 37 states currently, um, then all of those people who sign up for insurance on these exchanges in those states would become ineligible for subsidies because it would be illegal for the federal government to give those people those subsidies. Because we're talking about folks living at the poverty level or up to four times that amount, which sounds like a ton of money, but it's not. It's about 46 grand a year for a single person. Um, who incidentally is required to buy health insurance under the law, right? right. Um, you take those subsidies away, the insurance becomes by definition unaffordable for those people. They drop it, they go back to being uninsured, right? The silver lining under that scenario, I suppose, is that if you literally can't afford the insurance, you're exempt from the mandate. So then all these folks who just got covered, uh, which is roughly 10 million people in the first year of Obamacare enrollment, go back to being uncovered. Right, and they could die. And they could die. Sure. There is a, you know, there is a, someone wrote for the Washington Post a story about how I have Obamacare and if I didn't, I would be dead. And Jonathan Chait, I'm bringing him up again, he wrote a thing saying, well, this is a Republican plan to kill this man. And he got in a lot of trouble for saying that. But it's, you know, it's a consequence of what they want to do. And one of the things I've always thought about this Halbig case, it's not, and, and again, it's King versus Burwell. That's going to the Supreme Court, not how big. There are a bunch of these. They're all basically the same. But one of the things that's kind of like occurred to me about how big stinia is that opponents of the law are enthusiastic about this despite – they must know it's exceedingly intellectually dishonest. They must know that. And I have to think that if the shoe is on the other foot and this was like – the way liberals were choosing to go and attack some law that conservatives like they would be screaming bloody murder in the streets they would be walking around with like burn marks on their hands staggering around with scarred up bodies and screaming about judicial activism but I think about it in terms like this this is literally probably the last chance Obamacare opponents have at scuttling the law in a way that doesn't involve a legislator putting his name on the bottom line saying I want to throw these people off their insurance. I think you're maybe underestimating the creativity of these folks as evidenced by the existence of these lawsuits and the fact that no they one ever grew, court. No, right. no one ever grew. This makes me think else too. Like when Zach was talking about kind of the analogy to um, uh, banks and financial companies suing over regulations and things of that nature – Where the analogy falls apart in my mind a bit is that in those cases, those companies are motivated by making extra money uh, and keeping the government off their backs so they can do whatever kind of crazy stuff they want to do without interference. In this case, these lawsuits exist because a law professor and a think tank employee hated Obamacare so much (laughs) that they found some way to try to kill it. They don't personally benefit from this. And found enough – well, sure they do. I, have you ever heard of those guys before this started? I guess. I guess so. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is, this is not motivated by— But they're not flipping by, a regulation so moti- someone can make more money. That's right. This is not motivated by the kind of self-interest or whatever that you may see in a lawsuit yeah. where a bank says, well, this regulation is clearly against the law. Uh, this is people who don't like the idea of the federal government spending one person's money so another person can go to the doctor. 
period. That's why this is happening. The text of the law is not, you know, it's not as though someone just happened upon that and was like, hey, this is an interesting legal question. It was motivated by how can we strangle this kitten in the bathtub? You know, drown this kitten in the bathtub. Oh, I think I found the right tub. Right. It's filled with just enough water that maybe we can pull this off. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is also why it kind of grosses me out a little bit, the level of enthusiasm that some people demonstrate about the possibility this may succeed. Now, right. again, like— oh, they're very excited like, about people losing their insurance. Super I, like, excited about it. I can't—I cannot criticize anybody for thinking that this law is bad. That's just a matter of opinion, right? right? And if your ideological motivation, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, sure. is that the government should not spend one well, person's money like, on somebody else. That the well, inability to afford insurance is a moral that's failing. That's absolutely valid point of right. view. Uh, well, and then, well, that's getting into some 47% or stuff, which is, I guess, related, what yeah, you just said. Yeah, of course it is. But to stand on the sidelines while someone's IV is being unhooked and clap. It's just gross. It happened at a Republican debate in 2012. Yeah, that was that was pretty gross too. I think it was generally believed to be appalling. But there there was one of the things that conservatives are cheering about, though, and that they're pointing to. You brought up the, the issue, Jason, of intellectual dishonesty, though. Um, is this guy Jonathan Gruber? These videos have surfaced about he's a, he's a former, uh, I believe, advisor to uh, yeah. allow Obamacare me to process. explain. Yeah, what, if what, I what, please what explain happened this. Here? Because um, until uh, a few days ago, or maybe a few months ago, when the first of these videos people may have seen on on uh, cable TV or on on the internet um, came out. Almost no one had ever heard of this guy uh, by rights, and I don't mean that as uh, to disrespect him. Almost no one's ever heard of me, for he example, had a bit and part I don't of, even have a graduate degree. Gruber had a bit part to play in Obamacare. Well, that may be understating it a bit. So let me, I'll run through this really quickly. Jonathan Gruber is an economist and a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Yes. He is one of the, if not the foremost experts on the policy of the individual mandate and the way that health insurance exchange marketplaces and subsidizations work, right? That's his professional background. He probably knows tons of other stuff too, but that's what's relevant in this case. Gruber came into, sort of became a star in the health wonk world during the drafting of Romney Care in Massachusetts right. in the mid-2000s when Mitt Romney and then the Massachusetts legislature enacted the law that's the model for the Affordable Care Act. Right. He played a very large role in helping craft that policy in Massachusetts. And as I was reminded in something I read today, uh, to the extent that Mitt Romney name-checked him during the signing ceremony as someone who was crucial to getting the Massachusetts law passed that Romney was so proud of back then. Right. Um, consequently, when Congress started looking into some way of you know, reforming the health care system and expanding coverage for people who were uninsured and you know, taking away things like not letting insurance companies kick you out if you get sick or not let you come in, um, they turned to this academic who had helped write this law in Massachusetts for guidance. Right. Um, He had a couple of contracts with the Department of Health and Human Services worth, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to do some economic modeling for them. He was also a vocal proponent of the law. You may have seen him on TV back in 09, 2010, talking about how this was a good idea. Um, He made a comic book about explaining the Affordable (laughs) Care Act. This is true. He wrote a a graphic novel. Right. so, media expert. Right. so that's who this guy is. Who he's not is the, the president, mm-hmm. a member of Congress, a member of congressional staff, 
or a White House employee. Right. Right. Um, And I don't mean to say that he had no influence over this because his policy ideas are baked into the law, mostly because they came from Romney Care, and also, you know, he was asked to run some numbers for them and stuff but like that. But he never that. spoke for the White House on any of this. No. Uh, <laughs> he spoke for health care reform right. and for the Affordable Care Act as a supporter of it. Right. So these videos come out. Uh, the most recent one is him calling voters stupid, which is rude. And uncalled for. <laughs> Wait, conservatives were upset about that. Well, that's the main thing. I mean, because look. they're also big fans of Chris Christie. You, well, <laughs> you know, it's like to to support Chris Christie uh, is to support a man. I think Chris Christie calls individual voters stupid. Jonathan Gruber called all of them stupid. Okay, <laughs> oh, I can right. see why. That's so, if you also voters. think that the person yelling at Chris Christie is yelling at is an idiot, <laughs> then you're going to love it if he tells him so. This yeah. so this is a little so, different, so. Um, but but so he said everybody was stupid and seemed to indicate that um, the only reason the law passed is that people didn't understand it and that that's because Congress hid some of its provisions or wrote them in such a way that they didn't look like what they actually were, um, which I mean it's Congress so it's hard to argue that didn't happen in this case. <laughs> like in every other one. Right. And you know, we could talk about the specific parts of the law if we want. But my only real quarrel with this with the yelling about this is that this is only news if this guy is way more important than he in reality is. Right. Right. So you're seeing him described in all of a sudden in every reference as the author of Obamacare or Obamacare's architect, which as I've been saying for months must be news to Max Baucus and Henry Waxman and the members of Congress who actually wrote the goddamn law, right? right. Or to be uncharitable, the lobbyists from the hospital and insurance and physician pharmaceutical industries yeah. who also – and the pharmaceutical industry who yeah. also wrote parts of the law without the help of John Gruber. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean at the risk of repeating myself – I'm not saying he had no influence. Right. He obviously did. But what like, I am saying is that no one has provided any evidence, and I certainly don't know about this as someone who's covered the hell out of this thing from its conception, um, that John Gruber's phone rang when you know Rahm Emanuel or Barack Obama or Joe Biden or David Axelrod or Nancy Pelosi or Harry Reid or any of these people were like, how do we get this bill through Congress? Right. What's our legislative strategy? What's our PR campaign? I don't think – and if somebody knows different, please please email me and let yes. me know. But I don't think that uh, John Gruber was getting those calls. No. I just don't think that's true. They had right. people for those jobs. And so his assessment of the politics, marketing, and you know inside baseball legislative strategy may or may not be valid – but he's not describing these things as the person who decided how they were going to be. He's giving his assessment of how they were and why he's glad that everything was so shady because the law he liked got passed. So, right. so, so really what you're saying is that the, the furor over the Gruber stuff is, is sort of another exercise in, in kitten drowning where you know, he, he said some stuff that, is, that, that conservatives who don't like the law can latch on to and say, well, yeah, I don't like the law either and this makes the law look bad. So maybe there's enough enough water in this well, bathtub that we can, we can and, use this to drown. And the other thing is that the stuff that he's that he said about, you know, the, the way the law was passed and what's in it and the lack of transparency and how voters are stupid, etc., aligns very closely 
with how many conservatives actually feel about the way the Affordable Care Act moved through Congress, right? So if your, if your point of view is that this law was rammed through, things were hidden from the American public, you know, everybody lied about how much it would really cost and what it would really do, well, here you've got a guy who's a public proponent right. who has who had influence over the making of this policy confirming your what you already believed, yeah. right? Well, that, that's going to be powerful for you. That's going to aggravate you. Right, still. That... that those things may not have been true all along or immaterial and that he's not necessarily the best spokesman for this may also be true. I mean, I'll put it this way, just by, just just to draw a contrast. If instead of it being a YouTube video of John Gruber speaking to, I don't know, 25 eggheads at a conference that no one, that no one attended. Um, it was Kathleen Sebelius in the Oval Office. That's right. Or Nancy <laughs> Pelosi or David you know, Max Axelrod. Baucus or David Axelrod or Rahm Emanuel. If there was some FOIA that came out of HHS, you know, with Kathleen Sebelius saying, we have to make sure no one knows anything about any of this. That's a legit, like, obfuscation scandal. Right. Right. This is Obamacare supporter says shitty things that confirm the suspicions and convictions of Obamacare haters. That's what's happening here. Well, there, but there's there's another uh, issue with with earlier statements where he, he was talking. He was basically making the the Halbin case, right? He was basically yeah. saying, um, you know, we wanted to to force states to. Uh, to give them an incentive to, to put up their own exchanges, which, uh, like, as you were pointing out earlier, just cannot be the case. It's so <laughs> weird. That, so that was back in July. Him, the, the tape of him saying that out loud is the only time I've ever heard anybody who likes this law and liked it when it was a bill and wanted to pass ever expressing that idea. Um, so, I, I mean, and he very clearly said it in exactly the same way that these lawsuit plaintiffs did. You know, Jonathan Cohn at the New Republic interviewed him after that, and he was like, I don't know why I said that. I don't know what to make of that. That kind of sounds like a yes. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe he saw the same thing in the law and thought that the administration should be using that as a stick to the states, and they never did. I'm not really sure. But, again— It strikes— again. Even though he's this prominent Obamacare supporter, I'm not totally clear on why his opinion about that thing should carry as much weight as it has for some people since he didn't actually write the law. Do you know what this reminds me of? Do you remember the contretemps that Peyton Manning got in with uh, <laughs> Vanderjacked, his – his 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 uh his former kicker for the Indianapolis Colts vaguely Vanderjack I think it was Vanderjack someone will correct me if I'm wrong you know he's he he, he criticized the team yeah. you know he talked a big game he puffed himself up a little bit and Peyton Manning was just like ah idiot kicker <laughs> shut up idiot kicker like you're not as big as you think you were like to me Jonathan Gruber has like emerged as like the idiot kicker of Obamacare some guy who like was important but not central, maybe talked a little bit out of school, maybe said some things to puff himself up a little bit, make him look a little bit more important, and it's biting him on the ass. But again, bring me the tape of David Axelrod saying this shit. Idiot kickers, drowning kittens, Obamacare. Yep, that's America. (laughs) We got analogies. We got analogies for days. So that's what happened. This podcast was edited by Ibrahim Balki and sound engineered by Brad Shannon with assistance from Christine Canada, Christiana Leviso, and Adriana Ucera. We're joined today by Zach Carter and Jeff Young. 
I'm Jason Lincolns. If there's a story you'd like to hear us cover, please feel free to email me at jason at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we miss you already. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.